When an athlete competes at the Olympics, it's not just their dreams on the line. My name is Kristina Tsimanovskaya, and at the Olympics, I took part in the 100-meter dash and also was set to take part in the 200 meters. It's the dreams of their country as well. Unfortunately, this year, not a lot of good things happened in Belarus. A lot of people were in prison, many of them were under pressure, many lost their jobs. And this year, people have started to be more and more afraid to express anything. But for Kristina Timonovskaya, her biggest dream, to win the 200-meter race in Tokyo, didn't turn out like she planned. They came to my room and said that an order had come in to remove me from the Olympics and not let me compete in the 200 meters. Kristina Timonovskaya tells us her story, what happened at the Tokyo Olympics and how she narrowly escaped. But what about her fellow Belarusians? One year after a contested election and the protests that changed the country, how safe is it to be a Belarusian citizen, wherever you are? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Kristina Timonovskaya loves the feeling of strength that running gives her. What I love about sports and running, I love sport because sport hardens me and hardens my character and makes me stronger every day. Her racing had been progressing for years. And in 2019, she claimed a gold medal in the 200 meters at the Naples Universiade. So this year, coming to the 2020 Olympics in Tokyo, she was excited to step up on the podium again. Very often, training was hard. And in some instances, I wanted to give up and go home. But when I understand why I am doing all this, when I stand on a pedestal, it's those moments that force me to carry on and train and compete further. The Tokyo Olympics felt like a world away from Minsk, the capital of Belarus, and problems at home. But Belarus's Olympic Committee is run by Viktor Lukashenko the son of Belarus's president, Alexander Lukashenko. I was simply trying to avoid any kinds of meetings with the president, the minister, and all the people that are in any way involved with the National Olympic Committee. But she ran into a problem. What happened at the Olympics is that I found out that I was being asked to run an additional distance race. I tried to inquire about it with the head coaches, who simply ignored me. At that moment, I felt complete disrespect towards me and my hard work. Emotions took over, and I spoke out about it on my Instagram, which was followed by discussions with the head coaches, and that I had to be sent home, and that I had to say that I got an injury, return home, and be silent, so that I wouldn't be punished. She says a coach gave her 40 minutes to pack. For Christina, the Olympics was over early. There was no 200-meter race, no 200-meter medal. And she was frightened about what was to come. 
I was playing for time. I was talking to my relatives, to my grandma. My grandma at the moment was watching the television. She saw what kinds of things they were saying about me, that I have problems with my psychological health and so on. But still, we decided that I will return to Minsk. After that, once I had already left for the car, on the way to the airport, grandma called me back and said that I cannot go to Minsk because it is not safe there for me. She was warned about what was awaiting me at home. There were likely a lot of thoughts running through this young athlete's head. Months earlier, a Belarusian journalist had been plucked out of a commercial Ryanair flight bound for Lithuania. He, along with a plane full of other passengers, ended up landing in Minsk, and he was quickly detained. And I think that, had I returned to Belarus, two things could have happened. I would either be sent to a psychiatric hospital or to jail. So at the airport, Christina refused to board the plane. It was a dramatic and desperate situation. She found Japanese police and used a translation app to ask for help. She made her way to the Polish embassy in Japan and eventually boarded a plane for Warsaw, Poland, instead of Minsk. Poland granted her a visa, flew in her husband, and invited her to safety. She could continue to train. I'm in Poland. Here, I am completely safe. My husband is with me, and the country is doing everything it can so I can continue with my sports career, and also provided us with everything that's necessary to live in total safety while we are here in Poland. Christina's feeling a little safer herself, but she fears for her family left in Belarus, her grandmother, and her country. Because though Christina's act was not a political one, it's politics that have caused several of her fellow Belarusian citizens to flee the country as well. A year ago this week, everything in Belarus changed. For the first time in over a quarter century, someone other than Lukashenko was poised to win the election. A young mother with hopes of taking the country in a more democratic direction. That young mother is Svetlana Tikhanovskaya. This government will never respect us because for more than 20 years it didn't. So they will never, you know, think about our people. Al Jazeera correspondent Stap Basin spoke to her in 2020, the day before election day. If the elections would be free and fair, how many percent of the voters would vote for you? I suppose about 65 cents. You would be a big winner then? I would be, yes, I would. But even then, Tikhanovskaya really didn't think she had a shot. I think we have no chances for fair elections. Just a few hours after I spoke to her, she actually went into hiding because police showed up at her apartment. That step again. She voted. And she, uh, she left again. Tikhanovskaya was right. Alexander Lukashenko would remain in power, claiming 80% of the vote. And we were sort of thinking like 68, 70 maybe. We ne- nobody expected 80. The next day, protests that had been building in Belarus grew. And Tikhanovskaya went to file a complaint to the election commission for election fraud. 
happened in that conversation when she was filing the complaint, we still don't know for sure. But what we know is that she was kept in a room together with two men who came in with video equipment. Uh, and she was there for three hours without a lawyer, without her phone, without anything. And the next thing we know is she slips out through the back door and ends up in Lithuania. Suddenly there was a video coming out. Я знаю, что her reading something from a statement, поймут, uh, saying that the protest should stop. That was definitely not her own will. Но, знаете, I know that many will judge me, and many will begin to hate me. But God forbid anyone faces the choices I had. Now, a year later, Lukashenko is still in power. Tikhonovskaya has not returned to her country, and protests inside Belarus have ground to a halt. There have been more than 600 political prisoners, dozens of thousands of people have been detained. Hannah Lubakova is a Belarusian journalist who also felt forced to leave the country over the course of the past year. My friends are in jail, basically. Every person that, that I know or work with either left the country or has been imprisoned. So this is very dangerous, this is very frustrating, this is very um, heartbreaking, and it's not really possible to operate from inside the country at this stage. Hannah doesn't disclose where she is at all. Basically, for safety reasons, I don't usually say many details about that. I was born in Minsk and I lived there for years, basically. Now she's a fellow with the Atlantic Council. I write analysis, commentary, I also a freelance journalist. And she's writing a book on Belarus. About what happened last year. I think what really strikes me is that people are still resilient. Even those people who stayed, they might not be the most active people, but they're still against Lukashenko. They have not given up. Uh, they might not be able to protest because the level of repressions is just incredible. It's just really dangerous to even walk in town, in the city, because security forces might consider any person as a threat, as a dangerous, somebody dangerous. People were detained for wearing red and white socks or trousers, and these are Belarusian national colors. I mean, this sounds crazy, but once they arrested a man who was holding a Japanese flag, because it also has white and red. Wow. We are actually joking that there is a true equality right now in Belarus, because businessmen, musicians, artists, IT professionals, doctors, athletes are detained, so kind of every person representing every group can be detained. Do you also have some fear expressing your views about the country? As a journalist, um, well, I'm based abroad, so I'm obviously uh, much safer than uh, my colleagues, my friends who are inside the country, who are on the ground. Nevertheless, I think nobody can feel safe at this stage. The first major event to shake up the Belarusian community outside of Belarus, along with the international community, happened in May. A Belarusian journalist, Roman Protasevich, was plucked out of the air. He was a passenger on a Ryanair flight from Greece to Lithuania that was diverted with the help of a Belarusian fighter jet. And he was taken into custody when the plane landed in Belarus. The interception of Ryanair Flight 4978 is now a full-blown international diplomatic crisis. 
Belarus state media says President Lukashenko personally ordered a military jet to escort the passenger plane away from its scheduled route. What happened in May to Roman Protasevich, a critical blogger who was on board of this Ryanair plane that was forced down in Minsk, shows us that nobody um, can feel, can be safe. And let me remind you that there were EU passengers on board. Then came the Olympics. I asked Hanna what the incident surrounding Kristina Timonovskaya's forced removal from the Games says about the state of Belarus right now. This was supposed to be an internal conflict between an athlete and her coaches. And it was just that. But because Lukashenko cannot accept any criticism, he's scared of any critical voices. He considers it a treason. He considers this betrayal and an attack on his power. Um, she was told by her coaches that this is not even the decision of a minister of sports, but somebody on a higher level. It just shows, basically, it was Lukashenko who made this conflict political. And on August 3rd, another blow for Belarusians outside of the country. Vitali Shishov, an exiled Belarusian activist, was found hanged in a park in Kiev, Ukraine. Vitali Shishov's life ended here, his body hanging from a tree. He'd set off for a run near his home in Kiev, but didn't return. We don't know what exactly happens to Vitaly Shishov. I remember that day he was found in a park hung, so that became a really shocking news for everybody who knew him. He was a prominent activist. He helped many of those people who were fleeing from repressions from, from Belarus to Ukraine. He was uh, the head of this Belarusian house in Kiev, so his work was, uh, was very important. Now the investigation was launched and the Ukrainian police and the government are looking into what happened to him. It might have been a suicide um, or a murder that was um, kind of pre pretended to be a suicide. His relatives are having many questions about what happened to him. He went missing and, um, well, another issue is that, you know, because it happened to him in Kyiv, in Ukraine, not, not even in Belarus, it became a clear signal to, to those people who are based there or everybody who is based abroad that they might not feel safe either. People were protesting outside the Belarusian embassy and there were expressing their frustration because that's something that kind of provokes a lot of fear among activists all over the EU. So what do you make of the international response to incidents like these? Because there have been sanctions, but have the sanctions had any effect on the Belarusian leadership? After the incident with Ryanair, that was a clear threat not only to the citizens of Belarus, but also to those living in the EU. That became another red line that Lukashenko crossed, and that was too much for the West. So the West reacted really quickly in a really harsh way. So firstly, the flights over Belarus, the Belarusian airspace were banned, which is um, not a small thing. And then sectoral sanctions followed. I think the regime in Belarus is really scared because of these sanctions, and this is going to affect its economy very much. And um, when it comes to those sort of stereotypes about sanctions, that it's going to harm the economy, um, I would say that, firstly, the economy of Belarus is very much destroyed by the Belarusian regime. 
people in Belarus already suffer, and workers have been repressed on a massive scale. And these um, funds that the regime receives from from experts are, are being misused, are being just used to pay security forces. So that's why Belarusians ask for sanctions, because that's one of the very few tools that the West has, and one of the very few effective tools, I would say. One other strand of this story. Belarus's neighbors have accused Lukashenko's government of allowing a record number of migrants from Iraq and Afghanistan who have come to Belarus to then cross illegally into Poland and Lithuania. And they say it's in a bid to pressure those European Union states. Is this retaliation for Western sanctions and Poland's acceptance of Belarusian activists who have fled? Lukashenko has been promising if the West imposes sanctions, then Lukashenko would stop preventing irregular migrants and drugs or some cigarettes from coming to the EU, to other countries, to Lithuania, to Poland. And now, uh, because the West imposed sanctions because of human rights violations, now Lukashenko's only response was uh, to not even to allow irregular migrants to come to Lithuania or Poland. Instead, actually, there there are examples of state-run tourism agencies selling uh, holiday packages to people from Iraq to come to Belarus and then to to travel to Lithuania. So he was bringing those migrants to the border so that these people could flee from conflicts and the situation in their countries. He was doing this to destabilize the situation in the West, in Lithuania, in Poland. As long as he's not stopped, he is going to escalate. And that's why nobody can be safe, I think, even abroad. And yet, over this past weekend, protests against Lukashenko continued in several parts of the world. Ina Shulha is a Belarusian living in Poland now. In Poland, we have so much people who are living here. And she was protesting there to remind people of what's happening in Belarus. But she was nervous, too. I can say that I'm... Not feeling very safe, especially in a situation which happened in Ukraine now. One of the main activists of Belarusian house in Ukraine were killed and they found him a couple of days ago hanging on a tree. And this is not very, um, it's a good situation for us. And uh, now we see that uh, many uh, strange people are visiting our uh, manifestations. She describes seeing these, quote, strange people at protests in Warsaw over the weekend. And they have the phones and they film in activists and people with the flag, flags, our flag. And um, now we uh, were hoping that Polish uh, police and other special, let's say, forces will take care of that. But for her, it's still important to get the message out. She doesn't want Belarus to be forgotten. We can be strong, we can help each other. We can find a a solution how to work and to uh, work against the regime. My name is Ilya and I am organizing protests, working with Diaspora to make sure that Belarus stays in the media, in the news. Ilya is also from Belarus, but lives in the Netherlands. And he organized a march there last weekend 
but his work is global. We have a chess system for all European and worldwide, which includes uh, Canada and Australia and uh, states. We go as far as Japan, we have a small diaspora there as well. So we're trying to show the world that Belarus has lots of potential to be a great country. But even as far away as he is, he says it's hard to feel safe. I have grown up in the Netherlands. I feel the power of freedom and to be able to, to say things that will not endanger me. And now with all the things going on in Belarus, I'm not so sure anymore in, uh, about my safety in the Netherlands. It's really hard to describe this uh, feeling uncertainty, feeling on, uh, on safety. The longer this goes on, I feel like uh, Lukashenko's hands get further and it seems he has no limit to what he can do. So it's a bit concerning. It's an unusual situation to be in. He's picked up new habits he didn't have before. To share on social media what I'm doing, where I'm going to go, or now I'm not doing that anymore. We spoke about how a year ago these chats exploded and while I was still admining them, and how now people are afraid to speak in those chats because they know there's police, because they're public chats. Those chats were used last year to message where people, where, where the police is going or where you can hide. People, people think twice when they speak in this chat. There's many people who are sick of Lukashenko, but they just feel hopeless in a way because there's no more majority on the streets. There's no more big protests. Uh, one by one, people get snatched away. People try to organize something. Uh, in Minsk, people write on walls. So that's the, that's the best they can do at the moment. You have absolutely no idea what the regime is capable of. We tried to reach people in Belarus for this story, but not surprisingly, it was hard to find people who were willing to speak. One person we heard back from says he tries not to watch the news, which seemed to imply what he was seeing about his country was too hard to watch. For Olympian Kristina Timonovskaya, she's still safe in Poland, but she says she has a lot of worries about her country right now and the people she left there. Freedom of speech has disappeared in Belarus, and our country, unfortunately, has become one of the most unsafe countries in Europe. But she's still training for herself, and for her country, she's still hoping for the best. Because every day you have to train. In difficult situations, sport gives me a reason not to give up. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Amy Walters, Medina Kispe, Alexandra Locke, Nagin Oliay, Priyanka Tilvey, Ney Alvarez, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Tom Benton is our story editor. Aya El-Milek is our engagement producer. And Stacey Samuel is executive producer. A special thank you to Katya Bodan for her translations and to Julia Korastolova at the University College London for all her help. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at AJTheTake and rate and review the podcast on your favorite podcast app. We'll be back. I'm Kevin Hurton from Al Jazeera's iUnit. I want to tell you about our new documentary podcast series out now called The Men Who Sell Football. We wanted to find out what would happen if a criminal tried to buy a major English football club to launder his dirty money. The results? 
Let's just say it won't fill you with confidence in the system. Give it a listen and subscribe to Al Jazeera Investigates wherever you get your podcasts.